This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The 2020 English Classic Sale gets underway on Sunday, February the 9th with a catalogue comprising 808 yearlings, 613 in Book 1, 195 in the Highway Session. Book 1 will be sold on the Sunday, Monday and part of Tuesday with the Highway Session following immediately after. 103 stallions will have progeny in the sale with 31 first season sires represented. 734 yearlings are Bob's eligible. Classic sale graduates in recent years include Vow and Declare, She Will Reign, Castle Vecchio, Shadow Hero, Samadout and Yankee Rose. It's a world-class sale at a world-class venue. The 2020 English Classic Sale commencing Sunday, February the 9th at 10 o'clock. Queensland-born Jonathan Darcy was in his mid-teens when he fell under the spell of racing and the guidance of legendary Queensland race caller Vince Curry. Jonathan's mother, Jill, was one of Australia's first female tipsters and was heard every Friday night on a racing review program hosted by Vince Curry on 4BC. The young man was captivated by the whole theatre of racing and it wasn't long before he became Vince Curry's assistant at tracks like Gatton, Kilcoy and Bow Desert. On leaving school, Jonathan spent a year at Ian Headley's well-known Coolbadar stud at Bow Desert and then came a stint at Joe Manning's Woodburn pre-training and spelling property at Cootamundra. His next adventure was to enrol for an associate diploma in horse stud management at Glenormiston College in Victoria. Jonathan was required to spend the last six weeks of that course engaged in an equine business of his own choice. His mother, Jill, just happened to run into John Inglis at a major Brisbane race meeting and arrangements were made for young Jonathan Darcy to spend that six weeks with William Inglis and son at historic Newmarket. That fateful experience took place in the spring of 1986 and 33 years on, Jonathan Darcy is still there. He's worn many hats in more than three decades, including a long stint as a member of the Board of Directors. Today, he's General Manager of Bloodstock Operations and International Development, and he's a very busy man as the 2020 Classic Yearling Sale approaches. Jonathan joins us on the podcast. Morning, Jonathan, and thanks for your time. Oh, John, thank you for that lovely introduction, and uh, it does take me back. There were some, uh, some great days spent on in all those uh, different activities, you know, certainly going back to the days of, uh, of running around the tracks and getting the prices for Vince and the time spent at uh, Ian Headley's uh, property at, um, at Coolbadar, it was um, a great learning experience because there were so many different aspects to raising horses there. And then, you know, a very professional outfit, Joe Manning and, and Woodburn, where we used to spell Tommy Smith's horses and breed horses for people like Peter Gallagher. And yeah, I remember, I remember John one time, um, Theo Green sent a couple of uh, staff down with um, – uh, a horse uh, for the Blue Diamond. Anyway, the horse went and won the Blue Diamond. The boys had said, oh, look, we've got one. We've got one better at home. So, you know, you should load up for the Golden Slipper. 
Yeah. Anyway, so I had I had my meagre weekly uh, wage on him, and I was at Young Races one day, and Inspired came out and won the Golden Sipper. So the mm. tip was pretty good from the Thea Green stable that day. That was 1984. It was indeed. Yep, and I think the Blue Diamond winner uh, to which you refer was a horse called Street Cafe. That is that is correct. Yeah, no, he was a he was a good horse. But yeah, no, it was I think it was great because you know people like Neville Begg were sending horses down, and from time to time. I can still remember being with Joe on a Sunday afternoon and uh, Tommy Smith arrived down from, from Sydney with Peter Gallagher and they went around and looked at their horses that were spelling there and it was um, just a great introduction. I mean, these were names that I'd sort of worshipped on the way up. Uh, growing up, I used to have uh, photos of my you know, my favourite horses on the walls of, uh, of my bedroom at home and, and yeah. to meet someone like uh, Mr Smith or Mr Begg and, and these people, it was, um, it was great for a, for a young man at that stage. Tommy Smith thought the world of Joe Manning, didn't he? He wouldn't have his horses anywhere else. No, and I think yeah, you know, I think that was shared by Joe as well. Um, you know, Joe was a he was a, a great raconteur. He was um, a very popular man. He used to travel to all the carnivals. But um, John, at that stage, he actually had his own stable as well. So he employed a private trainer, and so on a Saturday we'd go to places like Canberra, Wagga, Young. Tumut, um, anywhere that had a racetrack in that Riverina area, and we'd take you know, three or four horses on the truck, and um, most days we'd come back with a winner or two. Yeah, great days. Great days so long ago. <laughs> Indeed, but uh, no, look, um, obviously, you know, that Riverina area it was such a, um, a great nursery for a lot of horses in, in that day and age. I mean, it's changed now, but you know, even when I started looking at horses with, um, with the English organisation, you go down there and and people like Jim Lenahan and uh, and his brother and a lot of uh, studs, obviously Coringle's still down there, but that Riverina area, it was great to spend a year down there and uh, obviously Transmedia was up and running at that stage just down the road, so I got to meet um, you know some, some very good people through that association as well. Well, Jonathan, as I mentioned, today you are General Manager of Bloodstock Operations and International Development, and that role requires you to wear several different hats. Look, it does. I mean, I was um, in the role of sort of bloodstock manager for about 15 or 16 years. And uh, about 18 months ago, we uh, the board took the decision to bring on Sebastian Hutch, from, uh, who used to work at Coolmore, uh, a really good young man who I really enjoy working with. Uh, and he has brought in uh, a lot of, um, you know, new ideas. And I think he's really uh, helped lift English to a, you know, a higher level. But what that did, that gave me a chance to uh, take over a different role, which having worked in the same role for 15 or 16 years, it does become a little bit monotonous, as many people in the thoroughbred industry would know. It's a bit of a merry-go-round with sales and the breeding industry and things like that. So uh, last year, I, I started taking over a lot of the international marketing. So, uh, for example, last year, I went to China three times, America, England, Korea, mm-hmm. Hong Kong three times, New Zealand four times. But um, you know, it's a fascinating role. And... On top of that, I sort of oversee the two facilities at Riverside and Oakland. So we've just spent about $8 million renovating Oakland's, uh, mm. which has been uh, really worthwhile. We've um, got some ringside dining, but also um, you know, the facility was about 40 years old because we bought it from um, Dalgetty Bloodstock in 1994. Mm. And so that's really um, rejuvenated that whole um, that whole site. And I think uh, anyone who ventures to uh, the Premier sale coming up in March this year is going to see you know, a really, really state-of-the-art, world-class facility in which to buy their horses. The classic sale has gathered momentum at an amazing rate in recent years. In its early history, it seemed to be the place to buy the cheaper type of yearling, and you can still find uh, the odd bargain buy, but the top end has strengthened a bit, hasn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, classic, uh, you know, you go back to, to the days where, you know, Schwarzier went through and, um, of course, you know, led a merry chase. He went over. He was the first horse from Australia to go over to, to Europe and uh, and win that Royal Ascot week. So, you know, Paul Perry's um, vindication of, uh, you know, the speed that he had was certainly borne out for all to see. It's interesting. Classic's been a sale that has produced some of our really best stallions over the years. Um, you know, horses like Schwarz here, but I'm Invincible, of course, who's the leading stallion in the country at the present time. He was bought at, at Classic. Brazen Bow was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie Howlett bred him, and then, of course, he went on to um, you know, be purchased by Darling, and he's one of the, the up-and-coming young stallions in the country. Um, and, you know, even recent years, John, your know, horses like Hellbent and Extreme Choice and Spill the Beans and Odyssey Moon, you know, it's um, it's somewhere where you can go with a with a budget, as you say. You know, um, mm. last year the average was about seventy five thousand, uh, and you can go with a budget, and you can buy a well bred horse off some of the leading studs in the country, um, and they're raised on the same paddocks of those million dollar yearlings at Easter. But um, once again, you know, once a horse gets to the racetrack, they don't know how much they've cost, and I think that's borne out by the success <laughs> of Classic. And, and as you say, you know, some of those horses of, of the last couple of years, I mean, I think we've had uh, eight individual Group 1 winners uh, since 2008, horses like Castle Vecchio and Bow and Declare, you mentioned earlier, in her time. Mm. Uh, the slipper winner, She Will Rain, was a $20,000 yearling. So, mm. look, it's um, it's a popular sale, and what we find is a lot of trainers, a lot of syndicators, this is the one sale they come to all year. They just think it's... Um, you know that they don't have the time, particularly if they're if they're training or, or doing a lot of the work themselves. So if they pick out one sale in Australasia to come to, it's the classic sale, and fortunately that's uh, borne fruit for many of them. Let's preview the 2020 sale commencing on Sunday, February the 9th. What's the format, Jonathan? About 808 yearlings catalogued. It is, John. Look, we've got a really uh, high class group of horses coming in this year. Um, so what we've done, we've broken it. Uh, there's three three selling days. So uh, obviously a lot of people will have their eyes on the Millennium Race Day, which on is on the Saturday. So the first two years out at Riverside, we actually started selling on the Saturday night. But uh, as many would attest, it's a very big day. A lot of um, trainers and owners and syndicators and even our own staff are caught up with the race day. And uh, the last race has been sort of run at about quarter to six, six o'clock. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to, to start the sales shortly after that. It just got you know very busy and probably not easy for everyone to be there who wanted to be there. Um, and so what we've done, we're going to sell Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. And each of those days will start at 10 o'clock, John. And uh, each day we'll see um, about 270, uh, 270 horses sold. Uh, and book one, so we've got, as you said, about 800, uh, sorry, 613 horses in book one. And those first two days and the first morning of uh, Tuesday will be mm. the book one sale. And then we have what we call the highway session. Yep. So this is a session that um, can average around about $30,000, $35,000. So if you've got uh, a smaller budget and you've only got maybe a day or two to come to the sale, that's probably the sale session for you. And uh, we've already seen some very nice horses come out of that highway session the last couple of years. You know, going right back, I can remember meeting your mother one day in Brisbane. In fact, I think Vince Curry introduced us. And she was quite a trailblazer, Jonathan, uh, as a, the first radio tipster or very close to the first, and you'd uh, enjoyed going along to the studio with her at 4BC. I did, John. Look, I mean, obviously, you know, during school holidays or things like that, they used to record on a, on a Friday morning, and, and the panel, as you, as you discussed, uh, Vince Curry was the leading caller in Queensland. 
and they had a bookmaker called um, Dougie Boyle, who was a very um, quick with a one-liner, mm. um, a young a journalist called Bart Sinclair, who uh, obviously is now working for the Brisbane Racing Club as their uh, racing manager, mm. uh, and, and mum. So it was a, a diverse group, but they actually they got on very, very well. And um, I think that, that panel show spanned something like 12 or 13 years, and um, they get mum back on the, the radio at about half past eight, quarter to nine on a, on a Saturday morning to give her her best of the day. And that was normally interrupted by our, our beagle dog that would be barking at a cat down the road or something. So <laughs> Vince used to love, love to pipe up and say, oh, the dogs are barking something at uh, Bowen Hills. For those who don't remember the late Vince Curry, who died much too soon, I can tell you he was a brilliant race caller and an even more brilliant bloke. And you got to work with him as a teenager at a very impressionable age. I did. Look, and I, I was very, very fortunate. You know, Vince um, took me under his wing and we'd go out to um, to country meetings. And back in those days, of course, the, um, the, the level of communication on tracks is, is nowhere near what it is today. There were certainly no mobile phones. And so for um, the updates on the prices, Vince would be up in the, the broadcast box sometimes, you know, as you would recall, John, you know, sometimes you know, 60, 70 metres up the stairs. Uh, in the grandstand, and I'd be down in the betting ring, and you'd uh, you'd have the opening market, and then you'd sort of see what firmed, and then you'd run up five minutes before the race and say, well, you know, this is what they're backing. So Vince would relay relay that to the thousands of punters uh, off course in the TABs, and they'd uh, they'd have their bets. He had a, an amazing rapid fire style of race calling, and it was a popular belief in those days, particularly with Queenslanders, that nobody could call more horses more quickly than Vince Curry. He could really rattle them off. Oh, he could. You know, he was, um, you know, a great race caller. He's also, you know, a very good um, caller of other sporting events. I think he loved calling the boxing and the, the tennis was one of his passions. I think he called several Davis Cup ties. So, you know, he was, a, you know, not only, a, you know, a, um, a person who I worked with, but he was um, a very good family friend. Your mum and dad would have Vince over to dinner every couple of months and he'd, you um, It'd be great stories because at that stage, of course, a lot of a lot of people weren't travelling around the world, and Vince had that opportunity through his work, and so we'd um, we'd sort of sit bug-eyed and, and listen to these stories from far-flung places, and he um, he could certainly tell a good story. I'm delighted to hear that Mum's still keeping well, still doing the form, and still backing a few winners. Yes, yes, no, she's always she's always pleased to tell me when she's backed a few winners. Now, your late dad, John, wasn't as form-conscious as Mum and probably not quite as obsessed with racing uh, as Mum, but you tell me he was once the treasurer of the Mooney Valley Racing Club. He was, John. Um, Mum and Dad, obviously, you know, I grew up in in Brisbane, as you've stated earlier, and um, while I was at college, uh, Dad took a position with the Herald and Weekly Times, uh, which was a big move from Queensland down to to Melbourne, but uh, they they embraced it and uh, and Melbourne embraced them really uh, and so after um, a year or eighteen months, Dad uh, was obviously a regular race goer down there and got to know quite a lot of um, the people who were going racing and he was invited by um, by Bill Stutt and um, Jeff Tawney and a, a group of the committee at Mooney Valley to join them uh, and given his financial background, uh, he was um, asked to become treasurer at Mooney Valley and they were. They were great days. I know Mum and Dad, you know, just loved going out there. Obviously, Mum had a passion for the for the game, and and they'd raced the odd horse over the, the previous years. But uh, they really enjoyed, you know, meeting people, uh, and of course, meeting people from interstate. They had uh, had great pleasure in entertaining the Queenslanders that would come down for for Cox Plate weekend. And Mum used to host um, some pretty big events prior to the Derby and things like that. So 
look, they became uh, ensconced in um, in what was a really strong and, and vibrant racing scene in, in Melbourne in those days. After you completed your six weeks work experience with William Inglis and son, John Inglis invited you to stay on full time. It was a much smaller company then uh, than what we see today at Riverside. Oh, look, amazing. And, um, you know, I think um, I've really enjoyed seeing the growth of the company. But back then, we we didn't have an insurance division. We didn't have a marketing division as such. You know, the, the marketing was sending the catalogue out. And back in those days, we had uh, five or six staff that um, we went and wrote all the pedigrees up. We looked at the horses and then we did the bid spotting at the sales. And we had two or three people in the accounts that would um, you know, do the, the processing of the sale uh, after the sale. So probably, a, you know, all up, there'd be 14 or 15 people in the entire company. Uh, that was before, of course, we bought um, we bought the Dalgetty bloodstock business in 1994 and um that meant we got you know people like uh, you know Peter Hegney and and Mark Goddamade and uh, a group of people down in Victoria onto the team, and so that that sort of doubled the uh, the number of sales we were having. Uh, but then as a lot of these companies do progress, you know we went into insurance. Um, the the marketing of of uh, thoroughbred sales become uh, became a you know a much broader issue, and so um, you know we got people in who designed ads, who who planned marketing camps uh, campaigns. We got people who started going overseas and recruiting buyers. So um, it just grew and grew and grew. John Inglis was a man of old-world charm and impeccable manners, and he obviously had quite an impact on young Jonathan Darcy. Oh, absolutely, John. Um, I I just think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to have not only had the opportunity to um, to meet John Inglis and spend time with him, but to to learn from him uh, and. Not not everything about what I learned from from John Inglis was about the horses. Uh, I think that the thing that really sticks with me, John, is the way he treated people. Mm. Um, he treated you know the the strapper who was who was taking the the, the rowdy colt around at half past four in the morning at Newmarket exactly the same way as he treat you know Laurie Connell if he came over for the sales mm. or you know a, a, a leading um, a leading figure from international racing who was there for the sales. Yeah, you know, he he always had the time for them. He he looked them in the eye. Um, if it was four or five minutes he spent with each of them, uh, they knew that uh, they were the focus of his attention. What was your role in the company in those very early days? Computer technology was in its infancy. I can remember we had one little racing results computer in the corner uh, and there was a group of, as I said, four or five of us that uh, had to write the pedigrees. Mm. So I'd come on board. Um, I joined in about September 1980. Six and uh, we were most of the inspections had, had been completed by that time, and so we were charged with writing up the pedigrees for each of the sales. And so you'd pick up, um, there were just entry forms, so people had filled out entry forms. So you might pick up New Haven Park's entry form, and there'd be eight horses on it. And so the first thing you'd do is say, Okay, well, here's a, a marauding uh, out of uh, Summoned, and so you'd go and pick that up, and you'd go and say, Okay, well, Summoned sold a mare. Uh, or yearling the previous year, and then you have to update each of her foals. So you'd go to the stud book, um, uh, the big stud books, uh, and you'd find out what the foal was called uh, or the last couple of yearlings were called. Then you go to the race results computer and check if they'd raced. Uh, and we also had a card system where each horse that raced in Australia was updated on a Monday. Uh, that that went out just about the time that I joined, but I, uh, I do remember hearing um, several people telling me uh, very interesting stories about uh, you know how they used to do the cards. Mm. Inglis has always placed great importance on the annual tour of the studs when yearlings, which have been entered for upcoming sales, are inspected. And you were going on those inspections very early in your career. 
Oh, one to go. It was the it's it was the best part of the job, and I still think it is the best part of the job. You know, to go and see the next generation of horses coming along. Um, as you would know, you know, some of the champion race mares um, have their first foals, and it's it's a real privilege uh, in our position uh, working for an auctioneering company to to see not only the mares but then see their foals come along. So I'd I'd accompany uh, John Inglis. Uh, he'd do some of the rounds, or I'd accompany John Hutchinson, who was the bloodstock manager of that day, and a, a, a very very um, uh, incredibly talented person at selecting yearlings. He's still selecting very good horses uh, to uh, travel up to um, to Hong Kong at, at the present day. Um, I probably did more inspections in those early days with Reg Inglis, who was a great mentor to me. And and Reg once again, he was um, a man who I learned a lot uh, a lot from. Uh, very different to the boss, a completely different generation, of course. Mm. But um, Reg, um, uh, I think he imparted his own sense of um, of how to do the business to me. And you know, a lot of those uh, lessons I learned from Reg are certainly with me today. He uh, he became a very popular figure, um, a good auctioneer, uh, but also you know someone who um, inspired incredible loyalty in in both staff and clients. Uh, mm. You know, Reg could walk in a room and light it up, as you'd well remember, John. Mm. And um, he's someone you know who I, I really enjoyed going out looking at yearlings with. He he set a very very um, strong pace. I remember. Um, a young fellow had started with us. I'd been at the company maybe five or six years, and Reg said, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pick um, Jonathan. I'll pick you up at six a.m." And this other young fellow, who I won't name because he's still in the industry, he said, "I'll pick you up at at quarter past six anyway." So I was waiting out there at about quarter to six, knowing that Reg was a stickler for uh, being on time. So mm. Reg turns up. We turned. We we went down to Coogee to pick this young fellow up. Anyway, there was no sign of him. I think Reg waited ninety seconds past quarter past six and took off. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, back then there were no, well, well, there were no no mobile phones. So this poor this poor young bloke probably waited an hour and a half, and he's ended up going up to the office. And I think someone at the office said, "Well, you can't be late for Reg." So he learned his lesson. He was never late again, John. How did you handle the tricky situation of having to decline a yearling that was clearly not good enough, too small, too underdeveloped, offset knees, this blemish or that blemish? How do you tell a good client that one of his yearlings isn't good enough? John, it's a really good question and it's something that we still feel it's um, it's a very important part of our of our job. So we've got young people coming through the company all the time and it's the first thing that we say to them is that, you know, we never reject a yearling. We're, we may, we have to suggest that we've got a sale for every, every yearling that we have offered. Now, that sale these days might be an online sale, but I think it's important that you point out that the sale the horse is in, for whether that be Easter or the Premier Sale or Melbourne or Scone, mm. that um, for, for certain reasons the horse might be better placed in going to a lesser sale. And um, as as you would know in in the horse industry, it's you can sort of say anything you like to a, an owner, but never knock their horse. So it's <laughs> um, the delivery of that message uh, is very very important. And that's once again that's something I I learned from you know the likes of Reg and Jamie and John Hutchinson and and the boss. John, we'll just pause at this stage to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Jonathan Darcy after this. The autumn stars are starting to twinkle as the month of February heralds in some big-name races. Saturday the 8th is at Warwick Farm, hosting the $2 million English Millennium for two-year-olds and the $1 million English Sprint for three-year-olds. Saturday the 15th at Royal Randwick features the Apollo Stakes and the Light Fingers, both at Group 2, supported by the Group 3 Southern Cross and Triscay Stakes. Then we go to Rose Hill Gardens on the 22nd for three features, the Hobartville, the Silver Slipper and the Millie Fox, 
all at Group 2. The February Spectacular winds up on the 29th with two Group 1s, the Chipping Norton and the Surround Stakes, plus the Guy Walter and the traditional Golden Slipper lead-ups, the Sweet Embrace and the Skyline Stakes at Group 2. Also during the month, the first of the Country Championship qualifiers will be run at Coffs Harbour, Nowra, Albury and Taree. Yet another amazing Sydney Autumn Carnival is up and running. My special guest is Jonathan Darcy from Inglis. The lowest point in the great career of Bart Cummings was the collapse of the so-called Cups King syndicates in 1989, when Bart partnered with Coopers and Lybrand and Pete Marwick, who had devised a horse syndication scheme based on a tax break for horse investment that existed at that time. Bart went out and bought about $22 million worth of horse flesh. He spent 13 and a bit million dollars at your Easter sale, and Inglis wasn't the only bloodstock company to be involved in this. No, you're right. It was um, it was a fascinating time. I mean, um, you look back now, and I suppose the, the, the memories of it were twofold. I mean, first of all, I do remember the sale very, very well. Um, it went you know, it went way beyond expectations. But it had started earlier in the year. The Magic Millions had their sale, and they were up probably 15 or 20% because both Bart and Tommy Smith, who um, was working on a similar sort of um, syndicate with a tax break, both of them were working on these um, these big syndicates, and they were both buying uh, like there was no tomorrow. They went to New Zealand. Obviously, the, the Caracas or Trentham sales, as they were then, were being held, uh, and the same thing. They went very strongly there. But it was at Easter where they they really let their hair down, and I can remember horse, you know, a horse of um, David Haynes coming in and being sold on one bit of a million dollars, uh, and that was just unheard of. It had only been a year or two since the first million dollar yearling had ever been sold, and Tommy Smith was kicking these horses at a million dollars. So it were uh, it was a completely surreal scene, and I can still remember um, having a beer with uh, with Vin Cox and a couple of the other staff. Um, after the, the last uh, the last lot had been knocked down, and Reg walked up to us and he said, "Celebrate now, boys!" Because he said, "This isn't over. We've got to get paid for these." And they were such you know such uh, ominous words. And and sure enough, it was probably only six to eight weeks later that um, you know things had got very dire in the in the share market and people weren't investing in um, in horses, whether there was a tax break or not. Mm. And so, as history played out, um, I think it was Gay Waterhouse who went over to America and found an investor called John Kluge, you mm, might remember. I do. And he invested, he invested in Tullock Lodge and, and he got Tommy out of the trouble that he was in. Um, but Bart couldn't find a saviour and so all the horses were um, were brought together. So the horses that had been bought in New Zealand, the horses that had been brought, bought at the Gold Coast and the horses from Inglis, they were all uh, bought together. They were prepared for a sale and it was called the Night of the Stars mm. uh, and it was promoted around the world and we had a a really, really international buying bench there. I remember all the European agents came down. It was held in early September. So it's it's about six months since the sale. And, of course, anyone who knows thoroughbreds know that the moment they walk out of a sale ring, they start depreciating. Anyway, the, the end result was that, um, you know, all the, all the sales companies worked together, but basically we got 50 cents in the dollar back. Um, and so we were owed about $22 million to start with, so we were still owed about 11.5 plus interest because – the thing with uh, with auction companies and English um, you know, leads the way is that we pay out every vendor in forty two days. Mm. So you know, six weeks after the sale, we paid everyone out, mm. uh, and so we had to borrow all that money from our bank. Uh, and 
therefore we were paying interest um, up until the day we got that 50 cents in the dollar back. Mm. So we had a debt of, you know, in rough figures, around $12.5, $13 million. Mm. So the next step was, you know, what do we do with Bart? He still owes us the money. Um, and to cut a long story short, the board and, and Reg and John Inglis were, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the main part of the board. They had, you know, uh, there were others on the board such as, you know, Arthur and uh, and Jamie and Dick Inglis, um, Reg and um, Jamie's father. Mm. But it was the boss and, and Reg who really had to take the, the lead. And I think, you know, at that stage, Reg, Reg was taking the lead and he said, well, um, you know, if we can, we can you know, uh, bankrupt Bart, but what's that going to do? You know, we'd be seen as the, you know, the people who, who bankrupted the, you know, the, the guru of Australian training. And mm. so they decided to support him. They sat down and they worked out, um, a repayment plan that he would he would pay us a percentage of his earnings over the next three years. Uh, once again, you know, because Bart had no money, he couldn't go and buy any yearlings. So there really was not a lot of income. I, mean, I think we might have got you know, something like eight hundred thousand over the next three years. And so after that, um, you know, we pretty much wrote off the money. And one of the the side issues was that the bank that we were with at the time, and this is public knowledge, but the bank that we were with at the time uh, wasn't happy with. Um, uh, having to pay out all this money and have a debt of you know twelve thirteen million dollars hanging over their head, so they suggested that we um, we find other alternatives or they'd have to sell Newmarket, uh, and so it was it was a, a real turning point in the company uh, in the company's history, and it was Reg Inglis who went and and found um, ANZ, who are still our bankers today. Mm. He sat down with them, and um, that's what really um, solidified the company for the you know the next thirty years. Mm. Another disaster to occur in your time was the unthinkable botulism outbreak during the 1993 English Easter sale. Now, the alarm was sounded on the morning of Oaks Day, uh, with the Oaks run on Wednesday in that era, when a number of horses became very distressed. Now, the veterinarians quickly established that it was botulism, and they put it down to the presence of dead mice in a batch of loosened chaff, and the panic must have been disturbing. Uh, look, it's it's probably the worst I've ever felt um, in my role um, because of the, you just feel so helpless. Um, at that ta- at that stage, John, I lived in Young Street, which um, is obviously bordering our complex at Newmarket, and so I'd been there for um, you know, for six or seven years. Uh, and at that stage, uh, I knew a lot of the you know the managers of the farms and the workers on the farm. So it was about five o'clock in the morning and I remember um fellow called Brian Gorman once again before phones and things like that I got a knock on the door and that you know normally I'd get a through a few stones on the roof as they walked past to try and wake me up as they were going to work but this was a bit different there was a, a panic knock and it wasn't just you know a tap tap it was uh, a real whacking on the door so I got up and, and Brian was almost in tears and he said he said Darcy you've got to come he said you know there are horses dying and uh, I just of course you've just woken up it was very hard to to fathom what he was mm. saying so I slipped on a pair of shorts and, and ran down with him to stable three. And and there in one of the rows, there would have been six or seven horses lying, yearlings, lying in the rows, still alive, but in, in obvious distress. Yeah, uh, yep. And with them, you know, there were these girls and these young men um, trying to hold their heads down, trying to comfort them. And it was, um, oh, it was apocalyptic scene. It really was. And, mm. you know, as I said, just not knowing what to do. I mean, we got straight onto the vets and the vets were there within sort of 10 minutes. Uh, and as you say, their their first thought was that it, it was some sort of food poisoning, and you know, it was found to be botulism fairly quickly when they started testing things. But mm. it was something that that then took hold 
Uh, we lost several horses that morning. Um, you know, insurance companies had to be spoken to. I mean, some of the horses had already been sold and they were still yeah. on the on the grounds waiting uh, for transportation back to their new places. So insurance companies had to be rung to allow the horses to be put down because the vets were saying, look, they're not going to recover from, from what had started. Um, and it was sort of like a spot fire. Um, you'd be down there and then suddenly someone would come down, tap you on the shoulder, look, they've got a sick horse up in, in mm. barn one and Mick Tauti would run down and say, look, I've got, a, I've got a horse. I think it's suffering from the same thing. So it was um, it was a terrible couple of days. In fact, you know, a terrible couple of weeks. I kept a diary, which I've still got of, all the phone conversations, all the all the verbal conversations I had with with everyone from vets to transport companies to insurance companies to the owners of the horses, um, but I suppose what what really came out of it, John, was um, that was on the mo- so we'd we'd sold you know, 180 horses, 200 horses on the Tuesday, mm. and then Wednesday is Oaks Day, and so most people were you know unaware of what was happening at Newmarket. They went to the Oaks, um, but all the breeders were well aware of it. And a lot of them were saying, we've got to stop the sale. We've got to stop the sale. This can't continue. And Red said, we're calling a meeting. And I think it was around four o'clock. And he said, everyone's to be up in the office at four o'clock. So he gathered all the leading uh, breeders, the vendors, and said, this is the situation. These are, these are your best horses. This is your cash flow for the, for the next um, 12 months. He said, if we stop the sale now, all these buyers are going to go home. They're going to go interstate or back overseas. And we won't be able to get them back. Mm-hmm. Not only that. You know, they'll be, you know, these horses will be tainted because people will feel that there's an issue going forward. He said, what we need to do is stand behind our product. He said, the horses that have been sold, um, those sales are going to be cancelled uh, and the insurance will have to stand. But more importantly, he said, the horses that are to be offered tonight and tomorrow being Thursday, mm. said, you know, um, each of you has to stand behind your product. If something does happen in the future, um, you have to be prepared to cancel the sale. And so... After you know a few comments around the room, they all agreed to support what Reg should put forward, um, and the sales went on. and And the sales were well supported. I think the buyers really um, took it upon themselves to support the breeders because it was you know, it was a catastrophic event. But they knew that they were guaranteed. You know, if um, the horse did fall fall ill, that um, they'd be protected. So I think in total about 32 horses died. Uh, I think it was about 23 at Newmarket and some of the horses that had left the night before or that left um, subsequently passed away on um, in, in different paddocks around the country. But about $2.6 million was wiped off the sale. But I think more importantly, you know, it was it was a lesson to everyone that these sort of things, any gathering of horses, as we've seen with EI and other things um, in the meantime, it's um, it's there's always that, that chance that something can happen. You've been involved in several record-breaking sales in recent years, but the one to leave an indelible impression on you was the 2008 Inglis Easter sale. The very first horse to come into the ring brought 550000 What a start. Look, it was a phenomenal sale, uh, John. It was, I think, anyone who was there at Newmarket at that time, just to set the scene, it was... Um, it was sort of six months earlier that uh, Bob Ingham had sold the Woodland Stud Empire to Dali, so for something like half a billion dollars. Um, and so he was very much cashed up. You had Dali themselves who were very strong in the market and wanting to um, to ensure that they were buying the cream of the bloodstock. You had a young fellow called um, Nathan Tinkler who'd come on the scene the previous year and wanted to um, you know, show all the big boys that he had plenty of money. Yeah. And so... In, in those in those years, normally the top buyer at Easter would spend somewhere like six to eight million dollars. Well, I think Darley spent just over twenty million. Bob Ingham spent twenty million uh, himself, and Tinkler spent about fourteen million. So you can imagine the strength uh, of the market at, at that stage. So 
I, I can remember I can remember a New Zealand client brought a horse in a horse into the ring and uh, he said um, now the reserves you know two hundred and fifty thousand so anyway the horse um, the the bidding was going up and I was um, clerking at the time I think uh, Peter Heavy might have been selling the horse anyway the horse got to uh, to uh, to four hundred thousand and I said oh you know uh, Don you must be very happy with that and he said oh no I expected that I expected that anyway from Good. Just behind where he was standing, mm. Bob Ingham said, uh, Johnny, Johnny, have one. So, you know, 420, 440. Anyway, uh, Mr. Ingham said, who's bidding against me? And I said, oh, it's a gentleman from the Middle East, sir. So anyway, <laughs> with that, with that, he kept going and the horse made a million dollars. Anyway, I remember the horse got to a million and Bob Ingham said, I think that'll do him. <laughs> and the horse was knocked out. But yeah. the, the, the New Zealand vendor, I looked at him and he couldn't speak. And this is a person who at 400 was telling me that he expected that at a million dollars, he was gobsmacked. And it was, and that, that played out time and time again. And it was just, you know, it was a phenomenal sale, but um, almost again, surreal, uh, almost it surreal. Was, yep. It was, look, it was, a, it was a lot of fun at the time, but look, auctions can be like that and auctions can be the other way. And we've, we've had plenty of tough sales over the years, John. Mm. How could you forget the day you sold Takeover Target for $1,250? At a mix oh. sale to a little bloke from Queen Bean called Joe Janiak. The late John Morris had had this horse, John, as you'd be aware. He'd actually given him five barrier trials before giving up on him, and word was out that he had troublesome knees. That's exactly right. You know, you know the story pretty well. It was, I mean, for us, it was another, you know, unraced three year old by Celtic Swing. Um, he was a horse that was bred by Tony Hartnell down on the South Coast, and he came in. Um, to the ring, as many other horses did at a mix sale, uh, unraced, three-year-old. Uh, and I remember a, a mate of mine uh, called James Bouth, who's a who's a, a little Irish fellow who's lived in Australia for the last 20 years. He came up to me after the sale and he said, oh, you've cost me that horse. And I said, oh, why is that, Balfy? Of course, I was selling him and, you know, it was 500, 600, 800. Mm. And James Balfe had bid 1,000. Anyway, at $1,000, at $1,000. And I said, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this horse has won an official Ramweek barrier trial. <laughs> anyway, with this, with this, Joe Janiak bid twelve hundred and fifty. Well, Balfi only had a thousand, so yeah. he um, blew him he out of the water again. <laughs> blew him out of the water. And I, I always think, I wonder how the little Irishman would have been at Royal Ascot when when he was meeting the Queen. But I mean, for that horse, he won a Queenbian Maiden in yeah. the April of two thousand and four, mm. and six months later, undefeated, he won the Salinger at at, uh, at Flemington. Yep. So it was unbelievable six months. And, I mean, it's folklore, isn't it? Uh, Joe Janiak, you know, going over and meeting the Queen. He raced in Japan. He won in Singapore. Um, It just goes to show you just never know what these thoroughbreds are capable of. He won eight Group 1's takeover target and more than $6 million. Now, here's another one, Jonathan. You sold Maccabi Diva's first foal, a cult by the legendary Galileo. And you tell me there was a big crowd there that day. He was, he'd was he be the reason for the crowd, no doubt. Oh, for sure. Look, um, I mean, look, he was sold at the Easter sale and obviously there's always a, you know, a really healthy crowd at the Easter sale. But back in those days, we used to have marquees all over the Newmarket site and, and people would sort of spend time in the marquees and walk up if they were interested in a horse or interested in bidding in a horse. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of talk. I think he was on the front page of both papers that week. Uh, photos of him. There was, um, and he was a really good-looking horse. He was a dark brown with a big white face and a couple of white stockings. And of course, the first foal of you know the queen of Australian racing at that point, Maccabi Diva. And there was, I think, there was a lot of expectation. It was probably the most pressure I'd put on myself um, 
because um, at that time, you know, most horses they walk and they make what they make. But he was a horse that everyone was talking about, and so there was a there was quite a lot of interest in the build up. And uh, you, I remember the horse came in about four or five horses into my run, and just as the horse was getting close, you could just see people walking in. It was it was like you know watching the Australian Open tennis or anything. They were just you know, there was not a vantage point that wasn't taken. There would have been six or eight, uh, mm. you know, news media cameras. There was a whole heap of uh, photographers, and he came in, and the horse made one point five million dollars. So mm. it was a it was a great result, and um, unfortunately he couldn't back it up on the racetrack. But mm. it, it was a look. It was a lot of fun. But uh, sometimes yeah, those horses are more precious than they are fun. But it yeah. was uh, it was nice to it was nice to be um, be part of that. Samantha Mish. Uh, was an important mare in your working life. You uh, came across her twice. I did. I was lucky enough to sell Samantha Miss. Um, she made one point five million. She was bought by Chris Lees for a very good friend of of the bosses, a man called Ron Krogan, who raced a lot of horses with um, with Chris Lees and his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, she was a you know magnificent race mare. She was a you know multiple Group One winner. She won an Oaks, and uh, but Mr. Krogan decided to sell her. Um, towards the end of her racing career. She hadn't retired from the track, but he uh, decided that he wanted to sell her. And so she came through our broodmare sale, but as a race prospect. Anyway, I was um, charged with uh, with auctioneering her again, and she made $3.85 million. And you know, there was no reserve on her. And I, I can remember wondering where they were going to stop because John Singleton um, was overseas, but he was talking to um, Duncan Grimley, his racing manager, on the phone. And Duncan just kept bidding, and uh, I can't recall who the who the underbidder was, but mm. you just felt it was just going to keep on going. I thought this this is just never going to stop. We were going up in hundred thousand dollar bids, and uh, so that was a lot of fun. And I think once again, you know, captured the imagination. I think by that stage, you know, the Australian thoroughbred had really arrived on a on the world stage, and people really respected the fact that this was a top class race mare with a, a really strong pedigree. So I think not only for her racing potential, but her uh, future broodmare potential, she sold very well. Mm. There was a bay cult by Dane Hill out of Piccadilly Circus that you reluctantly had to pass in. You worked hard. There were beads of sweat forming on your brow, but you couldn't get to the reserve. Yes, yes. No, it was actually, I think from memory, it was Peter Hegney who was who was trying to sell him. And I was beside Peter and I was trying uh. to get the vendor. I was trying to get the vendor to meet the market because we did have some bidding on him. Mm. Anyway, uh, of course, his name was Fastnet Rock, and he's just been a breed-shaping stallion ever since that day. He um, he was obviously a magnificent uh, galloper on the racetrack, and as a as a sire uh, and a sire of sires now, he's um, as I said, he's been one of the um, the immortal horses that I've had anything to do with over the last thirty years. But mm. you could have bought him for three hundred thousand that day, and I will tell you what, the return on that three hundred thousand would have been immeasurable in these days. It's well documented that you made a very bold prediction one day. At the 2015 Melbourne Premier Sale, when a certain high chaparral filly went under the hammer, uh, you liked her and you said so. Well, you've done your research, John. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, this is a filly that uh, is still wait. Oh, mare is still racing at the moment. That um, Chris Waller um, now trains a mare called Young Star. So we offered her uh, for some very nice people out at Young. I think it was the first yearling they ever bred to uh, to sell. Um, she was by High Chaparral, and I actually went out and inspected her at, at Young. And she was she was a lovely filly. Um, she was um, in a paddock by herself, but she had great girth and and great uh, a great head and eye. Anyway, she went to uh, the Melbourne sale, and Anton Coolman and his family bought her. Um, but as I was selling her, I suggested that she looked like an Oaks filly. So it was nice <laughs> when 
Uh, about 18 months later, she came out and won the Queensland Oaks. It doesn't normally happen like that, John, but it was mm. nice to predict a little bit of uh, history. That's one to dine out on. Exactly, yes. No, as I said, I've got them wrong more times than not. Horse welfare, particularly in the racing industry, has been under the microscope in recent months. It's an issue English have always prioritised and will continue to do so. Look, you're right, John, and I think, you know, I mean, we are very committed to ensure that welfare is at the forefront of our of our industry going forward. I think, you know, as an industry, we do need to engage with the current generation and, and ensure that racing has got a, you know, a good moral position in the community. So, I mean, some of the things we've put in place over recent years, I think it was sort of eight, seven or eight years ago, we put in place a minimum bid. So at any sale we, we hold nowadays, whether it's online or at a live auction, we won't sell a horse at under $600, uh, which protects you know, those horses for un- unscrupulous buyers that you know, might not have the best of intentions for those horses. So that's a, a starting point. But Ingus have always been you know, strong supporters of other equine pursuits like you know, Pony Club and Dressage and you know, the show ring events. Uh, and and we, we pride ourselves in that and, and enjoy that, um, that form of sponsorship. But what we're going to do now is really focus on supporting thoroughbred classes in these various disciplines. I mean, what we want to do is encourage our pleasure horse community to look at the thoroughbred as their go-to horse. I think, you know, over the years, I remember Neil Lavis won, won gold medals on, on thoroughbreds over in the in Rome in the Olympics, and mm. they're, a, they're a very versatile horse. And I think as an industry, we need to support these horses going into other disciplines, whether they've raced or not. I mean, my, my wife, um, Alicia, and daughter, Neve, they both ride, um, you know, ex-race horses. Well, one one was a race horse and one, one never saw the track. But it's great when I go out to, to see, you know, Neve or, or Alicia, competing in, in events around Sydney, you see all the famous brands. You see the Widden brand or the Sejinho brand or the Vinery brand or the Coolmore brand. Lovely. And I think nothing gives me more pleasure than to see those thoroughbreds um, getting around and, and enjoying, you know, life after racing. So I do think it's it's really important that, um, you know, we work, I mean, English are working very closely with Racing New South Wales and Racing Victoria on their initiatives to, um, you know, to, to help uh, rehome thoroughbreds, but ensure that every thoroughbred lives out at lives out a you know a good healthy life and i was really pleased this week john to see that racing australia advertising for um an experienced person to become their national equine welfare uh, executive so i think that's a really important role and i think you know the whole industry has to get behind the reforms whether they be with the whip or whether they be um with with anything to do with welfare because your know, times have changed and i think you know we have to move with the times and you know to have racing still you know as a as a strong sport in australia and around the world we need to adapt to um, you know, the current standards of the day. Jonathan, you've spent all of your working life with the famous company and you've enjoyed every minute of it. You've met and worked with some remarkable people and your life has been touched by many champions of the equine species. Thank goodness your mum, Jill, ran into John Inglis at the races in Brisbane one day in 1986. Look, it was a sliding door moment for me. Little uh, was I to know that that was going to be the path I'd follow. Um, but I think, you know, the best thing about my, my job is, you know, I get up every morning. I can't wait to get to work. Um, and in, on, on, yeah, certainly it's about the horses, but it's about the people you meet. And, um, you know, some of those people you've mentioned over the years, it's great to, um, you know, to think back to the impact they've had on my life. But, you know, the people I deal with, you know, on a day-to-day basis now, I spend a lot of time as I said, travelling up to to Asia and around the world, and there are some you know some fascinating people you meet, and it's great to get them down here and buying our horses. 
but you know the the heart and soul of our industry has always been the workers on the studs and the workers in the in the training stables and i've formed great relationships with those people i can remember you know several of those those young strappers going on to be successful racehorse trainers and the same with some of the uh you know some of the stud masters i met as strappers who are now running the biggest studs in in australia and new zealand and around the world so it's the people that you meet and it's been a fascinating journey and hopefully it's not over yet Great to have you on the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks for your time and have a great Classic Sale 2020. John, thank you very much for having me. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.